Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. So uh, the last two weeks that I've spoken, my notes have been five and six pages long. Tonight, I have 11 and a half pages. I couldn't help myself. There were too many things to say. So I may not cover all of them tonight, um, but here's my aim in the making of notes like this. My hope is that I write clear enough, I give enough scriptures, I give enough quotations from theologians, etc., so that you can go home and read this, and this is way more approachable than you reading for example, you know, an 800-page book on church history, right? So 12, 11 and a half pages is easier to read than something like this, although I also find this to be amazingly uh, pleasurable for me. But I summarize things like this into 11 and a half pages so that um, if this is not your appetite, then at least you can get pieces of the puzzle um, in notes form. So God, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. God, we pray that you would be with us, Lord, that you would open our eyes. God, we pray, Lord, that we would see the truth of your identity. Lord, that we would love you as the, in the way that you have revealed yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we are talking about the Council of Nicaea and other uh, councils as well, and we're talking about defending the doctrine of the Trinity against heresy. So I I first just want to say, in eight plus years of ministry and 150 or so teachings slash sermons, I do not personally, I've never personally used or thrown around the term heresy or heretic or anything like that. Um, So it's uncomfortable to use that language, Uh, but I do want to be faithful to what I have, what I believe and what I've found um, in the Word and in church history. Um, So I will be accurately using that term as it pertains to uh, Protestant Orthodox Christianity and the history of the church. So uh, we will start, I want to start with a verse and then a quote. Um, uh, the, the, the first small quote uh, is from a pastor, Bruce Bennett, and he says, more than 60 passages mention the three persons together, referring to uh, the three persons of the Trinity. So in one of those um, examples, um, I have read this in a prior teaching, but I want to read it again. Matthew 28, 18 through 19. It says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them. So Jesus is the one speaking um, this quote, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we've seen this before. We have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in one verse. Um, But I want to read a quote that is referencing this verse. It is by a guy named B.B. Warfield. He is a um, 
famous, uh, famous preacher and um, systematic theologian. So he says, we, what we are witnessing is the authoritative announcement of the Trinity as the God of Christianity by its founder. In one of the most solemn of his recorded declarations, Israel had worshiped the one and only true God under the name Jehovah. Christians are to worship the same one and only true God under the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the distinguishing characteristic of Christians. And that is as much as to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is, according to our own Lord's apprehension of it, the distinctive mark of the religion he founded. In other words, what we see here is we see Jesus himself making this summary statement of the, the core of the Christian faith, saying this is how we're supposed to go and make disciples. In other words, multiply the faith, and in multiplying the faith, this is the central thing, that we are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is distinctive from Judaism that denies the Trinity. So Jesus is, he is initiating, it's, you know, his own words initiating, like this is how we are to spread the gospel. We are to incorporate and put at center the revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, so that is, quote is from a book called The Biblical Doctrine of the Trinity. So what are creeds? So tonight we're going to be talking about creeds. What are they? How many of you have heard that term creed? How many of you have read or quoted on a Sunday a creed? Maybe the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. There's various creeds. Um, so at first I want to answer that question of what is a creed? So creeds were written out of necessity as heresies began to be documented and spread across the church. Creeds were written to clarify what Christianity believes and what Christianity condemns as false belief. So creeds were ultimately summaries of Orthodox Christian belief made up primarily of explicit statements found throughout the scripture, but organized in a way that summarizes theology and can easily be read corporately in worship gatherings and even memorized by Christians across denominational lines. Creeds uh, give unity to the church by affirming succinctly what it means to be a Christian. So this is different than statements of faith that individual churches or denominations give. Creeds are far more fundamental. Creeds were affirmed universally across the church. Hundreds of thousands of pastors and churches and would, would, would read and quote the creeds. We are distanced from this in modern charismatic Christianity because we are not, uh, the charismatic church is not a liturgical church, so we generally, we don't do that. That's just generally not a part of our Sunday service where we are, you know, quoting the creeds. I will say, as I've continued to dive into this subject, it pains me a little bit that we don't quote creeds because the creed is, again, a succinct way of saying, what is Christianity? What do we universally believe? 
not just the charismatic church in Boonville, Indiana, but what does the church, the global church, believe about Christ, about the Father, about the Holy Spirit, about the crucifixion, um, about creation, etc.? Like, what does the global church believe? Because the modern church is also generally pulled itself away from things like Sunday school, things like um, going through a class in order to be baptized. Um, one of the things that I, that I learned reading this church history book is that way back um, in the 200s and 300s, you had to go, you had to be discipled for two or three years before you could be baptized. Like you had to understand your faith you had to understand what the orthodox faith was, and then you had to prove that your life had changed before you were even allowed to be baptized. So, I mean, obviously, some of you, you've heard the term catechism. Like, that, that's what it was. It wasn't just in the Roman Catholic Church. Catechism was something that all churches did. We, we, we taught the people about the, the details and the depth of the faith that they, the faith that they were now professing. So in, in studying this, I see the, the potential weakness, right, in the, in the modern church to not do things like that. And, and, the, and the, on the one hand, we're trying to not be, um, we're trying to not be like structurally religious in, the, in a negative sense of the term, we're trying to not be, uh, like, have that mold, so to speak. So in rejection of the mold, we accidentally lose the benefit, the benefit of liturgy, the benefit of the creeds, the benefit of, of you know, uh, like, actual requirements for baptism, requirements for church uh, membership, etc. Okay, so... Uh, I'm going to read another quote. It says, In fact, most creeds were formulated in response to some heresy that was spreading throughout local churches. Rather than attempting to go beyond Scripture, the early creeds faithfully present accurate summaries of biblical orthodoxy that reflect sola scriptura. Creeds act as orthodox guardrails for theologians and pastors. So creeds act as orthodox guardrails. This is, again, something that we need in the global body of Christ. We need guardrails so that we can't just go to our prayer closet, claim to have had a vision from heaven, and then begin preaching something that's contrary to Christianity, right? So we need to be rooted in a corporate faith and a historic faith. I've been using that phrase a few times in the last month. There's a corporate faith and a historic faith, and creeds help ground you in that corporate and historic faith. All right, so now let's get into, I'm really just going to be covering a couple broad categories of uh, heresy related to the Trinity. And the first is Tertullian's response to Praxius, um, and this is referencing modalism. So Tertullian was born in 160 A.D., he was the first Christian theologian to write in Latin, and he wrote extensively against various heresies and defending orthodoxy. So Tertullian's uh, response to the false teaching of modalism was to write his treatise called Against Praxius. 
So in this document, he explains how the Trinity is to be understood. It is in this context that he proposes the formula, one substance and three persons. Likewise, when discussing how Jesus Christ can be both human and divine, he speaks of one person and two substances or natures, the divine and the human. And that is a quote from this book, uh, The Story of Christianity. So Tertullian is the one who began to put in concrete language what the Bible already taught and what Christians already believed about the nature of God. So th there's really two different categories. You have the boots-on-the-ground Christianity, right, made up of a whole slew of people from non-educated to educated. They, they encounter God. They proclaim faith in Jesus. They love Jesus. And then you have um, essentially the academic side of Christianity, the theologians, the pastors that, that deeply care about defining the truth and in rejecting the errant teachings of rogue preachers, right? Every generation has had rogue preachers. Every generation has had authors that write books. And in our day, obviously, we have, you know, blogs and YouTube channels and podcasts and other things that we can add to other categories of communication that we can add to that. But every generation has had that. So um, Tertullian was one of the first people that was able to dedicate his life to really thinking through and, and putting into these creedal type statements, what does the Bible say about who God is? So he is the one who, who came up with that language um, that God is one substance and three persons. And that is not a new philosophical thought. That is just putting into words what we seek and see clearly from Scripture. Right? We see God is one, God is one, God is one over and over again. And then we also see tons of verses, dozens upon dozens of verses that, that affirm the deity of Jesus. What do you do with that? And then also affirm the, the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. Again, what do you do with that? So he was, gave his life to trying to wrap his, his heart and mind around that reality. So the heresy of Sibelianism. So Sibelius was a priest, not a bishop from the third century, who likely taught in Rome. We don't know if he was from Rome or North Africa. So the heresy is known as Sibelianism, but the teachings came from Notus and Praxius, who taught Sibelius. So I just mentioned the name Praxius. So it was Tertullian who was writing against Praxius, and that is what gave clarity of terms to what Christianity believes about the Trinity. So, 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 but it was Sibelius who really, who learned it from Praxius and ran with it at a different level. So that what was the theology of Sibelianism? It's also called modalism, or if you use a real technical term, it's called modalistic monarchianism. Basically saying there is a sole monarch or ruler in the heavens, um, and that is God, and he does not have three persons. So they believe that there is only one person in the Godhead, with a singular divine spirit and no distinction of persons. So he said that there was one God with three masks. So that is the language that Sibelius used. There's one God with three masks. There is not a distinct Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
There is one God behind those masks, and he chooses when he desires to manifest himself as Father sometimes, to manifest himself as Spirit sometimes, to manifest himself as Jesus other times. Um, so, uh, and a subset of Sabellianism is called Patripassianism. So if you like big words, come to my classes. So Patripassianism is basically a technical way of saying it was an Eastern spin on modalism, and it believed that the Father suffered on the cross. So in, in, in essence, you'd have to believe this. If there's no distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit, and Father, Son, and Spirit are basically just job descriptions of the one God behind those masks, then you would have to believe that the Father suffered on the cross. That it wasn't Jesus alone who suffered on the cross. You would have to believe that the Father also suffered because there's no separation in personhood. They're the same. So that's what they believed. Um, and Sibelius was excommunicated as a heretic in 220 AD. But Sibelianism was revived during the Reformation by a guy named Socinius. He was a reformer who, who, who was also considered a heretic. So Sibelianism is kind of the one of two categories. Sibelianism or modalism denies that there is any distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. So then we have another set of uh, category of... Uh, error against the Trinity in um, Arianism. So Arius was a priest in Alexandria. He lived from 250 to 336 AD. So what did he believe? He believed that Jesus was the first thing God created, and he believed that Jesus was not eternally preexistent. So he, there's this famous phrase, this declaration from Arius. He said, there was when the Son was not. There was when the Son was not. It's basically saying that Jesus did not exist prior to the incarnation. So, so Jesus was not with the Father from eternity. He was, uh, he, he, there was a time when Jesus was not. So he believed that Jesus was the greatest of all creation, but still a finite being. So basically, he believed the Father created Jesus, and then Jesus created the earth, but that Jesus was not preexistent. So Jehovah's Witnesses today believe a modern form of Arianism. So and I'm going to read another quote. Um, it says, when pastors become theologically creative, problems are sure to ensure. It's one thing to clarify and contextualize biblical orthodoxy. It is another thing to try to rewrite it. Throughout church history, we find that some of the most not notorious heretics were seemingly well-meaning pastors. For instance, Arius was a pastor in Alexandria, Egypt. He was also one of the first pop artists. He publicized his teaching through rhyming chants and gained widespread popularity. Rather than continuing in the historic Christian belief that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, Arius taught that Jesus was created. The spread of Arius' teaching led in part to the Council of Nicaea. The Council Fathers promulgated no new doctrine. Instead, they reaffirmed historic Christian doctrine, 
the legacy of Arius continues today in many churches. So this is an interesting part of the quote. A recent LifeWay research poll found that 16% of self-professed evangelicals believe that Jesus was created. Another 11% were unsure whether Jesus is eternal. Another 22% believe that God the Father is more God than Jesus. And moreover, while 96% of those polled affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity, 51% denied that the Holy Spirit is a person. If you, if you deny the personhood of the Spirit, you are not a Trinitarian. In short, old heresies long condemned abound among Christians. And that is from a book called Church History for Modern Ministry. Why our past matters for everything we do. So even today, if you were to ask Christians across denominational lines what they believe about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the deity of, of, of God, etc., many of them would say technically errant things. They would say things that are in error with, with what we know to be Protestant Orthodox Christianity. So that is what you could say is some viable proof, so to speak, that this really matters. Like, this needs to be taught in our modern churches. We, 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 we can't just take this, the simplified statement of pursue Jesus, love Jesus, and have that be it. Because you have to define, well, who is Jesus? Is he a man? Is he divine? Is he both? Is he kind of halfway in between? Is he like a pseudo-angel? Right? So we, we need clarity on what is Christianity. All right, so now let's talk about the Roman Emperor Constantine. So A.D. 306 to 337. So I read a lot of church history in preparation for this because I, did, I didn't want to just give you a paragraph on the, the Nicene Council and not understand all that led up to it. So um, there was a great persecution that hit Christianity prior to Constantine and was around 295. And do you know what that was about? It was about Christians who did not want to join the army, of all things. So these Christians, many of them, they did not want to join the army. The, at the time, the, the Roman Empire um, was made up of four different leaders. And one of those leaders in particular... Uh, really disliked this reality that the Christians were refusing to enlist in the army, and he began to persecute Christianity, and it really snowballed. Um, so ultimately, this led to multiple edicts removing all Christians from any form of government. This included the burning of Christian buildings and the burning of Christian books. Um, Christians were strongly encouraged to abandon their faith during this time. So this was after there was a decade or so of actual semi-peace within Christendom. And I found this quote and found it to be uh, quite interesting under B. It says, Accustomed as they were to the relative ease of several decades, many Christians succumbed. So hear that. So here we have great persecution in the Christian church post the death of Christ. And then we have a few decades of peace, 
And we have Christianity coming out of this season of peace. And then we have persecution hitting again. And because the Christians were not used to persecution, when they were pressured to renounce and abandon their faith, many of them succumbed to it. And isn't that a warning to the American church who has not been persecuted much at all <laughs> since the history of America? So I found that to be uh, stirring and alarming. Um, so Constantine's father, um, Constantius, was one of four rulers of the Roman Empire. And when Constantius died, Constantine ruled in his father's place and did not enforce the decrees against Christians. So Constantine was a Roman emperor from 306 to 337, and he became the sole ruler of Rome in 324. So he signed what's called the Edict of Milan in 313, which made persecuting Christians illegal. So he partnered with one of the other um, leaders of the Roman Empire, and they agreed to not persecute Christians, to not follow the edict that was demanding that Christians be persecuted. Naturally, this helped Christianity spread. So Constantine, as a ruler of the Roman Empire, he was also the high priest of paganism, which was the official religion of the empire. So just to clarify... When Constantine was in power, paganism was the official religion of the Roman Empire, and Constantine was high priest, and he participated in all manner of pagan rituals. So those are the types of things that, you know, we can learn it by, you know, reading through a 800-page book. But it's very fascinating. Okay, so there is a debate as to if Constantine truly converted to Christianity. There's details I can't give here regarding the whole story of the back and forth and wars and conflict and how Constantine became the sole ruler, etc. But there was a point in which it seems that Constantine converted to Christianity, but he was not discipled. So he refused um, to submit himself under discipleship, which led him to continue to being the pagan high priest while he was... Uh, blessing Christians at the same time. So a little bit of internal conflict in his life. So, but he also was officially baptized um, into Christianity on his deathbed. So whether or not that baptism was real, that's in the hands of the Lord. But it, it, th there was definitely something about his life that helped him shape the future of Christianity with or without the the double reality of being a high priest of paganism. So the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. So I'm going to read another quote. It says, Arius, another presbyter in Alexandria, openly maintained that the Son was not eternal, but was posterior to the Father. In other words, less than the Father. That he was created not from the substance of God, he was, uh, and, and therefore, he was not of the same substance with the Father. Uh, he admitted that the Son existed before any creature and that it was by him God created the world. But it is uh, to be constantly remembered that these speculations were the business of the theologians. 
they neither express nor affected to express the mind of the church. The great body of the people drew their faith then, as now, immediately from the scriptures and from the services of the sanctuary. They were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They addressed themselves to the Father as the creator of heaven and earth, and as their reconciled God and Father, and to Jesus Christ as their Redeemer, and to the Holy Spirit as their sanctifier and comforter. They loved, worshipped, and trusted the one as they did the others. This was the religious belief of the church, which remained undisturbed by the speculations and controversies of the theologians in their attempts to vindicate and explain the common faith. So if you're, if you're not following me, here's what, I'm, here's what that quote is saying. The common people, they were actively being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were actively worshiping the, 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 the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was the theologians... Um, like Arius, who was, you know, using his free time to conceive of the nature of God, who came up with beliefs that had errors. Does that make sense? <laughs> so the state of confusion was, however, of a great evil. And in order to bring the church to an agreement as to the manner in which this fundamental doctrine of Christianity should be stated, the Emperor Constantine summoned the first ecumenical council to meet at, Ni at Nicaea um, in AD 325. And that is a quote by Charles Hodge, a systematic theologian. So I'm going to read another quote. The object for which the council was called together was threefold. So this is why the council of Nicaea was gathered. They were called to remedy the confusion which prevailed in the use of several important words employed in, discussing, in discussions on the doctrine of the Trinity, in other words, to give clarity on the Trinity. Number two, to condemn errors which had been adopted in different parts of the church and to frame such a statement of the doctrine as would include all of its scriptural elements and satisfy the religious convictions of the mass of believers. So that is why the Council of Nicaea met. They, were going, they needed to give clarity on the Trinity because there were errors being uh, promoted. They needed to give clarity on, um, on what Christianity was not. They needed to condemn those errors. And then they needed to come up with a statement that everyone could agree with. Um, so Arius was condemned in 321. So this was prior to Nicaea by a local synod, but he simply moved and continued to preach. So being condemned as a heretic did not mean that heresy didn't continue. Being condemned as a heretic simply meant that the church at large was saying, we do not endorse this belief in the lack of divinity of Jesus. But he, still alive, simply moved to a different town and continued preaching. Um, so uh, to read another quote, it says, Arianism, as it came to be known, disturbed the newly found peace of the Christian church. Rather than persecution from outside, now strife from within occupied the energies of believers. The Roman Emperor Constantine learned of the battle seeking a unified empire and fearing the results of a split of, Christ of, of the Christian church could bring, Constantine moved to encourage reconciliation and resolution. Failing this, he called a council to meet at Nicaea. So hear me. Prior to Constantine, 
There were four different leaders of the Roman Empire, including Constantine's father. So there was all manner of, there were wars, there were conflicts. Each of those leaders wanted to rule the entire empire. So there was conflict, 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 death, and conflict. So Constantine finally gains control of the Roman Empire as the sole emperor, and he sees that Christianity makes up a large portion of this empire, and so he wants Christianity to be at peace and in unity. So when he saw that, they, that, these, that these false ideas were rising up against uh, within Christendom, he's like, this isn't going to work because this could destroy the entire empire. So he called the Council of Nicaea in part out of desire for unity among Christians and partially out of his fear that a lack of unity among Christians would further deteriorate the hold on the empire that he had just gained. Does that make sense? So, around 300 bishops attended the Council of Nicaea, mostly from the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. Arius was not a bishop, as I had said earlier, so he was not allowed to attend. But he sent Eusebius in his stead. There were also a small group of bishops who believed in patripassionism. As, as I said, it's a form of modalism. Um, and they were also there at the council. So this is another interesting thing when you're, when you're looking at ecumenical councils and you're looking at creeds. They invited all the participating and all of the sides of the debate to come. You had to be a bishop, so you couldn't just be a rogue preacher. You had to be a bishop, but they invited all sides. So there were th at least three different opposing views on what is the makeup of God at the Council of Nicaea. So in the end, the Nicene Creed, Creed was formulated to renounce the Arian heresy and clarify right belief around who Jesus was in relation to the Father. It was ultimately declared that Jesus was of the same substance as the Father. So what was Constantine's involvement in the council? Constantine organized the council. He paid for the transportation of the 300 bishops. And he also suggested the key Greek word homoousios, meaning of the same substance that was used in the creed. But Constantine did not write or control the ultimate decision in any way. He was not presiding over the council in an authoritarian, controlling way. Does that make sense? He called the council. He wanted peace within Christianity. But he did not have control over what that council would write. So the Nicene Creed. It is the most universally accepted Christian creed in the history of the church. So I am going to read it. Uh, the Nicene Creed says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, uh, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures." 
He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who sit, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and of the life of the world to come. Amen. Hopefully, you will recognize that literally just about every phrase of that entire creed is our direct quotations from Scripture. How many of you have recognized the phrasing? Like phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase. They're literally just taking Scripture, organizing it in a way that we can quote, that we can memorize, that we can declare as a unified church. So um, there is one term in here that trips up every modern Christian. And that is, what in the world does it mean when it, when it says, I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church? It is not in the slightest referring to what we now know as Roman Catholicism. It is not referencing that. So this was the original meaning of the phrase Catholic church. The word Catholic means universal, but it also means according to the whole. To separate itself from the various heretical groups and sects, the ancient church began calling itself Catholic. This title underscored both the universality and the inclusiveness of the witness on which it stood. It was the church according to the whole, that is, according to the total witnesses of the apostles. So what does that mean? We're talking about a universal church, meaning cross-denomination, cross-boundaries of nations. We're talking about the church that believes the unified whole message of all of the apostles. Why does that, why do I need to say that? Because there were many heresies, they would take a single apostle and, and, and they would take what they believed that one apostle said, they would reject the rest and they would run with it and they would come up with a new idea. So when we're talking about the, the, the Catholic church at large, we're talking about the universal church that believes the whole message. In other words, what I said uh, a week or two ago about, um, you know, sola scriptura and tota scriptura, like believing all of the Bible, that all of the Bible should, should um, play a role in our understanding of what is um, orthodox and what is not. That's basically what it's saying. It's saying that the whole, they believe the whole. So in summary, all the writings of the so-called apostolic fathers deal with a single issue, and none of them seeks to expound the totality of Christian doctrine. The same is true of the apologists who were in the second half of the second century. Most of their writings deal with the issue of persecution. None of them look at the total of Christian doctrine. But towards the end of the second century, the challenge of Marcion and the Gnostics required a different response. The heretics had created their own system of doctrine. And to this, the church at large had to respond by having some of its teachers offer equally congent or clear, logical, convincing expositions of the orthodox belief, precisely because the speculations of the heretics were vast in scope, the response in which one can find a fairly complete exposition of the Christian truth. These are the works of Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen. 
So what is this saying? All of the writings of the early, the earliest writings in Christendom, they were all, they didn't start to give systematic whole theologies where they commented on everything that Christianity believed. They didn't start to do that in, until post, post-persecution. The persecuted church was mainly dealing with persecution. They were mainly dealing with how are we faithful, stay faithful unto death, encouraging one another in their faith. So it wasn't until the persecution of the church had settled down that the theologically minded began to, in in response to errant ideas, they began to sit and talk about and discuss and, and search the scriptures and to say, how do we define the faith that is living inside of us? Does that make sense? So you're not going to find these complete systematic theologies of the early Christian church. If, if they did exist, they have since been destroyed. So modern objections to the Trinity. So those who deny the Trinity, as I said, they kind of fall into these two heresies. Either they follow the Arian heresy, they deny the deity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and they say things like this. To say that Jesus is God is idolatry. That is the type of thing you will hear from anyone who is in that Arian camp, whether they know the term Arius or not. So they will also say things like, Jesus is not God the Son. So in preparation for this, I listened and watched many, many, many hours of debates, Trinitarians against non-Trinitarians. Because I wanted to understand, like, what is it? That, what do they believe? What are they claiming? What, what is the body of evidence that they're presenting as to why God is not three persons? And these were phrases that came out of those debates. They vehemently, with passion, said that Jesus, to say that Jesus is God is idolatry. How many of you believe that? Yikes. Right? I, I, I do not want to uh, agree with that statement. So on the other side... Um, other objections to the Trinity, they follow some form of modalism where they deny that God is three distinct persons. They deny the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. So Mormons identify as Christians, but their identification doesn't make them Christians, right? Jehovah's Witnesses identify as Christians, but their identification doesn't make them Christian, Unitarians also deny the Trinity, and they identify as Christians. But we know that their identification doesn't make them Christian either. So I'm just going to, in a super quick summary, cover this. Mormons believe in polytheism, a plurality of gods that each rule their own creation. They also believe that men become gods. According to Mormon teaching, at one point in the eternity's past, this man become God or heavenly father begat the spirit body of his first son. Together with his heavenly wife, the the father raised his son in the council of the gods. That's Mormonism. Mormons deny the Trinity and they assert that Jesus is a created being. They believe that both the father and the heavenly mother had physical bodies. They believe the Holy Spirit is not God and instead an electricity-like force. 
So Jehovah's Witnesses believe that God is one person called Jehovah. They deny the Trinity and believe that Jesus was the first thing Jehovah created. Before Jesus was on the earth, he was Michael the archangel. They believe the Holy Spirit is simply an active force of Jehovah. Islam. Obviously, Islam is not even claiming to be Christian, but I do want to give a summary statement. So they believe in one God called Allah. Islam denies the Trinity and explicitly declares that God is not a father and doesn't have a son. They believe the Holy Spirit is the angel Gabriel. They directly attack the concept of the Trinity in the Quran, but they also misunderstand what the Trinity is. They believe that Christians believe in three gods, and they believe those three gods are the Father, Mary, and Jesus. So Islam believes that Christians think that the Trinity is the Father, Mary, and Jesus. They explicitly declare that God can't have a mistress and therefore can't have a son. So Judaism also denies the Trinity. One of the primary issues Jews have with Christianity is the issue of who Jesus is and was. Is Jesus more than a man? Should Jesus be worshipped, prayed to, and obeyed as God? The Jews' answer is no. They believe that Christians worship just a man and that Jews worship the true God. As shown last week, there are Jewish theologians who see the Trinity as compatible with historic Jewish belief. But if you were to ask a random rabbi or a Jew walking the streets of Jerusalem, they would most likely all deny the Trinity. Okay, so I'm just going to go to this next section. We'll see if I can get through at least a part of it. So modalism revived in America. So as we can see, the historic heresies against the Trinity, they often resurface so many years later under different names, different leaders. They'll have a different spin on it, but it's a resurface of the original heresy. So modalism revived in America. Modalism arose in America in the midst of the Azusa Street Revival. How many of you knew that? In 1913, there was a holiness healing revival in Los Angeles. There were so many people being getting saved and healed that they decided to have a baptism service. They called a Canadian revivalist to talk about baptism. Should be simple enough. He gets up, and in the middle of his teaching, he says that there is no indication that any of the apostles followed the formula that Jesus gave to baptize in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. So if you look in the book of Acts, when it talks about baptism, there is a, a phrase that says that people were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then you look at Jesus' command to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And basically, they're putting the two together. They're saying they can't find a verse after Jesus' command, which, I mean, we should return to the command of Jesus, I would assume, as being the most important. But they don't see a verse saying that there was anyone baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and this is just a random bunny trail in a sermon on baptism by a random Canadian preacher. Um, so here's what happens next. So a man named John Sheep uh, stayed up all night praying about this because he was, he was gripped by this new statement, and he claimed that God gave him revelation 
that there is only power in Jesus' name. Because so many people were being, were being healed at the name of Jesus. How many of you know that's a good thing? People are being healed at the name of Jesus. So here he is. He hears this statement. People are, you know, the, the, the apostles didn't baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They only baptized in the name of Jesus. This guy's excited. He goes to bed that night, or he did, doesn't go to bed. He stays up. He prays, and he comes to the conclusion that there's power in the name of Jesus. So then what happens? Another guy named Frank Ewart heard this testimony, right? So, so it, this is in the birthing of the assemblies of God. So the assemblies of God starts in the Azusa revival. And so this is at the birthing of the assemblies of God. Um, th- this guy, uh, Frank Ewart, um, he hears this testimony. He was an Australian Baptist missionary that was kicked out of the Baptist denomination after being filled with the Holy Spirit. So he takes a year to think through this topic, and he concludes that it is not appropriate. Hear me. He concludes it is not appropriate, it is wrong to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that you can only be baptized in the name of Jesus because, again, there isn't a verse showing anyone following Jesus' command to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He and another, another guy named Glenn Cook they rebaptize each other in Jesus' name only. And this happens in 1914. And then they begin traveling around and teaching that you must be rebaptized in Jesus' name only in order to be a Christian. So this goes even farther. This is where it starts and it goes farther. I'm going to read a quote. It says, Gradually, some began to consider what baptizing in Jesus' name only implied. Some preachers began to preach that when scriptures speak of the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that it meant the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a singular name, Jesus. Eventually, this led to the understanding that there was only one person in the Godhead, Jesus Christ. This teaching spread that Jesus is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that was the progression of of belief. Um, and that quote comes straight from um, the Assemblies of God uh, website. So they continued along this line and said that the Trinity wasn't in the Bible and that they didn't like creeds because they sounded too Catholic. They ultimately believed you can't even be saved without being baptized into Jesus' name only. They believed that Trinitarians received the mark of the Antichrist. So hear me. This is the head of um, what would be termed as oneness Pentecostalism. This was the guy that started it. He, there's a direct quote. It's, I, don't, I don't have a reference because I um, saw it in a video and didn't get the exact reference. But it says they believed that Trinitarians received the mark of the Antichrist. In other words, it was the oneness Pentecostals that were pushing against the Assemblies of God Basically saying the assemblies of God and believing in the Trinity that you are receiving the mark of the Antichrist if you believe in the Trinity. So, and in response um, to this teaching, the assemblies of God officially clarified their belief in the Trinity in their first general council in 1916. So they clarified the Trinity, which ultimately kicked out the oneness Pentecostals from um, being within the assemblies of God. So, oneness Pentecostals are also known as Jesus Only or the United Pentecostal Church. 
They don't believe that God is three persons. Um, there was a group of pastors that were kicked out of the Assemblies of God back in 1916. And these are the guys that started the oneness or the Jesus only movement. They deny that there is any evidence of the interaction or distinct personhood within God. They deny that God is Trinity. So, um, they believe that Jesus is the only member of the Godhead, and sometimes Jesus operates as the Father, sometimes operates as the Spirit. They believe that the Spirit is not a person, but is more of a manifestation of Jesus' power. One of their core beliefs of oneness Pentecostals is, is that you have to believe in the Jesus-only doctrine in order to be saved. They deny that Trinitarians are saved. They also believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, and that baptism has to be done in Jesus' name only. Oneness Pentecostals also believe that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. The only way they believe you can prove you are saved is to demonstrate it by speaking in tongues. So in, in, in try, I, I really wanted to wrap my head around this and, 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 and to, to listen and watch and receive as much information on this as possible. And I came across this um, interview with this guy that used to be a Oneness Pentecostal pastor, and this is what he said. His name is Jim's, uh, Jim Boucher. He said, Oneness Pentecostalism, this guy used to be a Oneness Pentecostal pastor. He says, Oneness Pentecostalism is a distinct sect within Pentecostalism that is known for denying the doctrine of the Trinity, denying justification by faith alone, and their belief that all true believers will speak in tongues. So, so they believe that Jesus only existed in the mind of God before his birth. So they do not believe that Jesus was separate from the Father and preexisted. They believe that Jesus only existed in the mind of God prior to his birth. Amen. So, um, what I have here, maybe I'll go over this next week. I have a list of verses that I wanted to specifically, again, address the preexistence of Jesus and the separate identity from the Father. There are entire categories of scriptures that I don't have time to cover in a class this short. There is... Um, the Theophanies in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, where Jesus is uh, showing up in his pre-incarnate form before creation, um, or before the incarnation. Um, there are entire categories that I can't touch in a class this short. Um, but I did want to give another list of verses that specifically talk about Jesus' pre-existence and his separate identity from the Father. So I will cover those next week. Because here, like, th th this, is, this is why it matters. If we don't understand the weight of evidence for the deity of Jesus, the deity of the Holy Spirit, and obviously the deity of the Father, and the distinction within persons, you will accidentally, right, you will accidentally believe something that is not considered Orthodox or Protestant. Does that make sense? But you have Christianity as this large, unified reality, but what are we unifying around? Right? Because we have Mormonism that claims to be Christian. Um, we have Jehovah's Witnesses claiming to be Christian. 
So at some point, we have to identify and define what is Christianity. What are the exact parameters of what Christianity believes? And according to the historic faith that was passed down, it is this central belief of the Trinity that is the foundation of what identifies a Christian as a Christian. Like that is, that's why it's central to the creeds. Um, so we will continue on that next week. So Lord, we thank you, God. We pray that you would give us clarity. Father, we pray that you would be with us this week, God. We pray that you would continue to lead us to heal our bodies, God, to give us revelation of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time. 